Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Jamie Dunlop, on some biblical truths for pursuing unity in your church. If you say, you know what, I'm just going to be a Christian with the other Christians who agree with me and everything, so it's really easy and peaceable and comfortable, oh goodness, you're giving up a whole bunch more than you realize. Jamie Dunlop, next. We know churches are full of differences because churches are filled with people. In recent years, differences over political and social issues have frayed the unity of many churches. To help us navigate these and other differences among fellow believers, Dr. Jamie Dunlop, a pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., has written, Love the Ones Who Drive You Crazy, Eight Truths for Pursuing Unity in Your Church. Pastor Dunlop, why a book on this subject and why now? Oh, it's a book on this subject because uh, churches are full of people who are different from you, who think differently from you. And uh, I mean, the title, some are tongue in cheek, but who sometimes drive you crazy. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, before you started the interview, you prayed uh, from John 17 when Jesus says, uh, prays that we would be one, even as uh, he and his father are one. That's our calling as a church. And it sounds all sweet at the beginning until you meet some of these people. And uh, I think there are some very powerful resources in the scriptures, particularly uh, this book focuses the last chapters in the book of Romans to help us do that. You asked why now. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, some churches maybe get along just fine uh, and nothing's new. I talk to many pastors who, uh, between, uh, you know, an increasingly secular culture uh, that forces us to make hard decisions we've not made before, uh, to the polarization that uh, we experience with media and politics, uh, to just the fact that uh, I think churches are often doing a better job of centering around Christ alone, which means there is going to be a more uh, more diversity of thoughts and perspectives. Uh, I think a lot of churches are finding that this is more difficult than it's been in the past. And your church is located, well, as the title uh, or the name of your church, Capitol Hill Baptist, and uh, I would imagine being a a, a doctrinally conservative, uh, biblically-based church, and yet you're right there kind of in the middle of our uh, political uh, epicenter uh, of the United States. Tell us a little bit about uh, the makeup of of your church and and, and maybe uh, some of the challenges there, particularly maybe during the pandemic. Uh, yeah, so uh, the church is uh, five blocks from the U.S. Capitol building. Uh, that means that we have a fairly political and opinionated congregation. It's a fairly young congregation, so people often ask me, what's it like pastoring the great politicians of our age? And I was like, I pastor the people who open their mail. <laughs> that's, it's, uh, that's that's who my church is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the mail openers are any less opinionated about things. Uh, honestly, one one source of division in our church uh, that we have to be mindful of is the fact that many of us are not political in nature, uh, and it's not a church that talks politics all the time. In fact, I talk to many people, even in politics, who say the thing I love about church is the place where I don't have to always kind of put my face on uh, because I could just be myself. Mm. Uh, but it's uh, it's a church that has had uh, disagreements over the years. So you asked about the last few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we disagreed, as I think many churches did, about what to do with uh, very restrictive government orders during the pandemic. We actually chose, we voted together as a congregation to sue our government so we could meet outdoors during COVID. Um, and that was that was a 90% vote in favor of uh, 
but that doesn't mean it was an easy vote. That mm. was a source of division. We had many uh, protests in our neighborhood uh, in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. And uh, there was a great deal of disagreement over what those protests stood for and, you know, uh, what what is a Christian's response to them? Obviously, we had an election uh, now several years ago that was, uh, I think, very challenging for many in my church. And the aftermath of the election was challenging. So uh, all kinds of opportunities for our church to disagree and disagree strongly and disagree vocally. And they did. One one. Uh, uh, encouragement that led me to write the book was noticing that though people disagreed strongly about admittedly secondary issues, these are not primary gospel issues we're talking about, they all stayed hmm. and they all kept loving each other for the most part. Uh, and I can even point today to some very significant friendships that the people who became friends because they disagreed so much and they found their unity in Christ. And that was a, a wonderful foundation for friendship. So in one sense, the book is just me having observed a rest of congregation through some difficult years, many of whom were upset with me, and watching what it looked like for them to continue to choose Christ over comfort, and then just writing that down. And you, you mentioned uh, in your book, Love the Ones Who Drive You Crazy, Eight Truths for Pursuing Unity in Your Church, that you see uh, conflicts such as you've uh, uh, talked about already, and as of course we'll be talking about in some depth, actually as an evidence of faith as an evidence that the church largely is based on Christ alone? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Uh, I, you know, I would be a fool if I told you that my church navigated things well all the time. But sometimes I think what was going on was we've tried really hard to center this church on Jesus and not Jesus and a certain stream of politics, or Jesus and a shared commitment to homeschooling, or Jesus and a certain model of uh, racial justice. And um, that means that there is going to be disagreement. And I, one, one insight for me was realizing, you know, we're having a hard time, but that's not because things have gone wrong. It's actually because things have gone right. And hmm. what an encouragement for us as a church to think, okay, it's hard, but... Uh, the fact that we are so different is what testifies to the power of the gospel to to hold us together. Can, can you give, I guess at this point, uh, Pastor Dunlop, an overview of these eight truths for pursuing unity in the church? Your, your book says they're from Romans chapter 12 uh, through chapter uh, 15, uh, kind of an overview, and then uh, we'll just talk about as many of them as we can. People skip the introduction to books. You shouldn't skip the introduction to this one if you happen to pick it up to read it. Uh, the introduction is very much the thesis of the book, which is if you build your church around Christ alone, you're going to have differences and disagreements. And in fact, uh, as I think Paul comments at the end of, the, uh, of that section of Romans, Romans 15, verse 6, uh, God is more glorified because of your unity amidst difference than if you all agreed on the same thing in the first place. Uh, and so that's the encouragement I want to begin the, mm. the, the book with, that, that uh, easy love really shows off gospel power. If church was easy, that would be great, but uh, what an opportunity when we see difficulty uh, to show that crisis is enough to hold us together. Uh, and then uh, I just asked a bunch of questions that mm. I often hear from Christians. How could I love these people? Uh, that's from Romans 12.1, uh, just understanding in a very Christian way what does it mean for me to love beyond my own strength? We talk about that a lot. Well, what does it really look like? How do I love uh, supernaturally based on the supernatural mercy I've received? 
Next question, what if I don't want to love them? And we talk about the reputation of Christ in the church. Uh, wouldn't we be better off without some of them? That's certainly a question I hear and sometimes hear from myself more often than I should. Uh, but getting <clears throat> further into Romans 12, the truth that uh, in Christ we belong together. Uh, how can I build a friendship with those people? Uh, you know, one of the astounding things in Romans 12 is it says that uh, our love should be genuine, not not kind of forced white knuckle kind of love, but genuine love and affectionate. How do you do that with people who disagree with? So we look there at uh, some truths in the beginning of Romans 12. How can I really forgive those people? Uh, I think forgiveness is something we often talk about as Christians. Uh, when things are difficult in a church, we sometimes think we've forgiven. I don't think we've really explored the depths of what Jesus means when he tells us to forgive. Uh, we look there at the end of Romans 12 to get some ammunition to forgive better. Uh, how can I stop judging and despising those people? Uh, one of the great strengths of this, these sections of Romans is that Paul moves, I think, from largely preferential matters to convictional matters. And it's one thing to disagree over the color of the carpet, quite another when someone is violating your conscience. Uh, and we judge as a, as a result. Sometimes we know we're judging, we don't know how to escape it. Mm. And I think Paul gives us some good wisdom in Romans 14 to escape that judgmental spirit uh, and then lastly, how can I love those people even when they're wrong? Uh, and the truth I examine there is our accountability to God, and that changes how we view our role in these people's lives and, uh, and God's role in their lives as well, so that we can continue to love even when we disagree over secondary matters of right and wrong. I appreciate that. And I'd like to ask you a little bit about, uh, and you explore this too, some of the well, the causes, some of the precipitating factors, if you will, that lead to conflict. For example, social media. And, and for those that are maybe not partakers of social media much, it's sort of off the radar, but you may not, you may not realize what a, a fertile source of, of conflict that can be in a church. Yeah, obviously, uh, you and I are fans of radio. That's very mass market. Uh, everybody gets the same thing. But of course, uh, we're in a culture today where uh, certainly people under 30 are getting most of their media intake from, you might call it micromedia instead of mass media, which means that sometimes people in your church are disagreeing uh, because they don't even have the same set of facts that they're looking at. It's not just an issue of interpretation, it's facts. That polarization, as I mentioned earlier, I think is also true of uh, our political conversation as a, as a country. Uh, I think in an increasingly secular nation, many people are turning to politics almost as their religion. And those attitudes seep into the church. Uh, I think even some really wonderful answers to prayer can lead to this. Uh, if you look at the data, churches, particularly uh, majority white churches, are far more ethnically and racially diverse than they were even 15 years ago, which just means that in those churches, you are more likely to find someone in the pew next to you who disagrees on one of the many issues that tend to cluster by race, race and ethnicity. So uh, uh, quite a lot of reasons why... You know, as, I, as one pastor said, gosh, I look back in the worship wars of the 1990s with fondness, <laughs> uh, because it's so much harder today, uh, as hard as it may have seemed back then. Yeah. So, social media is, uh, I, I mean, for, for the church leadership, such as yourself, I mean, you're, you're in the, obviously in the younger generation, uh, c compared to some, is that is it helpful for pastors to be on social media and at least being somewhat aware of what they're church members are saying and posting, or is that kind of a big distraction? 
Oh, it's a good question. I've chosen not to be on social media. Uh, so I have a Facebook account. I have never posted to it a single time. Uh, so it's my chance to keep track of people's birthdays, and that's about it. Yeah. Uh, I know other pastors who have uh, used social media really well. And of course, some pastors have used it as a, as a poor example. I think it's something we need to be mindful of, careful of, and, and just aware of the the profit-driven motivations that are behind what happens to show up in your feed and making sure that we don't use that to form our worldview about what's around us. Uh, because uh, sometimes what we read isn't the most accurate. In the... Uh Consumer mindset, if you will, uh, try, trying to find the church maybe that best suits my needs. And if something is going on in, in my church that I don't like, it's, it's, it's almost kind of acceptable. Well, it's time to move on and find a church that does meet my needs. Can you talk about that as a, as a challenge? Yeah. I, I should say it's okay to leave your church, right? There's lots of good reasons to leave a church. Uh, I sometimes as a pastor am encouraging someone to leave our church uh, because it's just not maybe because of our geography or me or something else. It's just not the best place for them to grow as a Christian. So I never want to say it's wrong to leave your church. And yet, I think you're right. We often leave for bad reasons. Uh, and I think some of it comes down to our consumeristic mentality that uh, we often you know, shop for a church like you shop for a car, right? Does it have the options I want? Is it going to meet my needs? Is it going to give me any trouble? Is it going to make me look good? Well, great, that's the church for me. The challenge with that is that what do you do with the very unconsumeristic attribute of churches that are full of people who are different from you? Uh, take the churches in the New Testament. They were rich and poor. They were slave and free. They were Jew and Gentile. And it was, it was their love, despite those differences, that was in a number of places in the New Testament is what showcases the power of God in their midst. Uh, that's not a consumerist mindset. Uh, that's a mindset that says, I'm here because I love Jesus, and I think that Jesus is worth more than my comfort, and even when things get uncomfortable, I can I'm going to continue to pursue Him. And so I think that as pastors, we've often misled people by attracting them to our churches as consumers, and then almost do the bait and switch and say, aha, but now you're here, you have to love these people who are hard to love. That's not very kind at all. Uh, it's not very Christian either. We we should come to church because that's where we find Christ, uh, even though his people may sometimes be a little more of a motley set than we anticipated at first. Well, you make that point. Uh, you just did, but you make it in your book, too. Diversity is a good thing. And, of course, the church is such a diverse group of people that God has called out of the world to faith in Christ. And we're we're gathering with, with, with a group of people that, that many of them probably we wouldn't uh, meet under other circumstances in our day-to-day -day lives. Of course, it makes it really wonderful, too, that, that we are meeting people that are, that are very different from us, and yet, hence, the challenge so often. Yeah, and diversity of church is very different from diversity in any other environment. You know, you go to an Ivy League school, and you're going to find a nice diversity of, you know, skin color, but they all believe the same things about a whole bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. You come into the church and you realize, oh, gosh, these people are really are different. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a guy in my church who, um, when he first started coming, he was a professor at Harvard University. He taught mass psychology, psychology of crowds, and he was not a Christian. He came to the church, and the thing he noted was that there were people who were remarkably different from each other, who, as he put it, had nothing to gain from each other, and yet were deeply committed, and he just could not figure that out. Mm. 
And that's that's eventually what led him to faith in Christ. And he retired, moved to my neighborhood, lives actually on my street, uh, joined our church, married one of our members in his 60s, is still a member 15 years later. Uh, but even a Harvard professor was, he just couldn't figure out what is it that draws these people together. Well, the answer is Jesus. He's just that good. And, and hence, you're, you're talking about, I was going to ask this question later, but what's at stake in terms of uh, unity in the church, in terms of unity in the body of Christ? There, there's a witness to to each other, in one sense, to other believers, but then also to the world looking on. Yeah, I would say what's at stake is our witness. Uh, so it seems that you know, they'll know we're Christ's disciples by our love for one another. But in particular, as we get into Luke 6 and Romans and Ephesians and elsewhere, it seems that love that can't be explained by just natural affinity alone, so our witness is at stake. Uh, the glory of God is at stake. If you love those who love you, Jesus says in Luke 6, what reward will you get? What does that say about God? Uh, but if you love those who, frankly, it's a Christ-alone kind of friendship where you don't have much in common other than Christ, that says something about the power of God in your life. Uh, what's at stake is our joy. Uh, I promise you that Jesus is a better foundation for friendship than Jesus plus your shared love of uh, whatever football team you happen to enjoy. Uh, what's at stake is is our ability to hold on to the truth. Ephesians 4 says it's particularly uh, unity in the body, in that case between Jew and Gentile, that leads us to maturity so that we are able to withstand the lies that our culture tells us. Uh, and so if you say, you know what, I'm just going to be a Christian with the other Christians who agree with me and everything, so it's really easy and peaceable and comfortable, oh, goodness, you're giving up a whole bunch more than you realize. Well, the book is Love the Ones Who Drive You Crazy, Eight Truths for Pursuing Unity in Your Church. My guest is uh, Pastor Jamie Dunlap, Associate Pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. Well, you, you do write that some conflicts, they're over biblical issues, where biblical truth is at stake. Uh, and, of course, sometimes we think that's the case when it's not. Can you give an example or two of, of what that would look like and how we can n navigate those with, uh, with our fellow believers? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, calls for unity have been really abused through the years. You know, so early 20th century, that's how we got theological liberalism to destroy so many of our denominations. Uh, mid 20th century, calls for unity were largely how many churches were at least apathetic, if not opposed to the civil rights movement. Uh, so if you think, uh oh, unity sounds like a liberal, uh, you've got some history on your side. Uh, and yet the New Testament talks about unity a whole bunch. So where should you uh, disagree? Where does Where is truth more important than unity? You actually see it in Romans 16. Uh, so after Paul talks about all the times when unity is more important than our disagreements, 16, he looks at another issue and he says, avoid them, have nothing to do with them. Now truth is more important than unity. When the gospel is at stake— you know, your, your pastor is preaching a prosperity gospel mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, if you have enough faith, then you'll have your Mercedes Benz. Get out of that church. Uh, truth is more important than unity. There are some issues that are not gospel issues, but we, we can't kind of disagree over them and have a church together. Uh, so, you know, do you baptize infants or not? 
you gotta you gotta obey Jesus. And if two people have different views of what it means to obey Jesus, you're gonna have two different churches. I think our cooperation together across those lines can showcase our unity in Christ, even though we're in different churches. And there are other issues. You know, if I picture myself in uh, you know Nazi Germany in the middle of uh, the 20th century, at some point in time, my church is gonna have to decide you cannot support Adolf Hitler and be a member of this church. Uh, that's probably a judgment it took churches quite some time to come to. Mm-hmm. In some cases, others got there very quickly. And uh, every church is going to have to understand where do you draw those lines. Uh, you know, you you cannot call yourself a Christian and advocate for same-sex marriage because that is clearly contrary to Scripture. That's a social issue today that's going to draw clear lines in a church. You say, is that a gospel issue, Jamie? Well, 1 Corinthians 6 says that believing and acting on that is the road to hell, which doesn't mean you can't repent of that. But if that's not a gospel issue, I don't know what is, uh, since the gospel is there to send us to heaven. Uh, and so uh, if you're wondering, is this particular issue the kind of issue that is big enough that uh, y- truth trumps unity, that's where I would just say, talk to your pastors. Uh, figure out where is your church trying to draw those lines so that we can center on Christ in the gospel uh, and be honest about what is true and important. Let's say you're in a you're in a small group in your church, and something comes up along one of these lines, or at least it seems to touch on an issue that is critical. What advice would you give for the people in that small group or the person leading it? I mean, you you you're you're sort of on the spot, if you will. Yeah, you know, you've got to make a judgment. Is this the kind of issue we can disagree over and happily be members of the same church? Or is this the kind of issue where, you know, say you're the small group leader, you've got to call it out because uh, if people begin to follow this direction of teaching, they're going to go in the wrong direction. You know, I would just say, what does your church say you need to believe to be a member of that church? That that's kind of, mm-hmm. you know, your your document of unity, so to speak. And if you have any questions, you might just say, ah, you know, I'm not sure if this is a good path for conversation right now. Let me talk to our pastor and I'll, you know... I'll tell you what he says when we gather together next week. Good good advice. You believe we need to be increasingly prepared to have differences of conscience with people mm-hmm. at church. What is an example of that, and why do you believe we need to be increasingly prepared, and what do we do? Well, you know, as, as we live in a culture which is increasingly secular and secularized, uh, you know, it's almost like the, the tide is receding around us, and Christians are going to disagree over kind of which moorings you're going to hold to. Uh, so, you know, someone's office says you have to put your pronouns in your email signature. And so they do it. And someone else says, don't you realize that in doing that, you're giving into the transgender agenda? And they say, well, I'm not actually doing anything wrong. Well, that's a place where uh, I would be on one side of the issue rather than the other. Uh, but I think we need to recognize that that's a convictional difference that we need to understand is not going to preclude us being united together in Christ. The beautiful thing about Romans 14 is Paul gives us three different issues uh, that were convictional disagreements of the churches in Rome uh, that he said were not so significant as to preclude unity in Christ. He clearly comes down on one side of the issue. I mean, he, he opens his cards up at the end of Romans 14, and yet he says what's really wrong is not uh, my getting the answer to this question wrong. It's not loving someone despite the fact that they're wrong. 
And, uh, you know, again, figuring out what issues are Romans 14 issues and what issues are, say, Galatians 2 issues that need to divide the church, that's where you need advice from your pastors. Can, can you give us, uh, our time is going very quickly here, Pastor Dunlop, but where we run into some kind of a difference, some kind of a conflict with a fellow church member, how to uh, cultivate the love you described with people we disagree with. We know we're part of the, the body of Christ uh, together. And, and then the role of, of the local church, the church leadership week to week, helping to build and encourage that kind of unity in Christ in a diverse group. Yeah, well, you have conflict with a church member, you got to figure out, is this a conflict because someone has sinned against the other person, or is this a conflict because we disagree with one another? Mm. Uh, if it's sin, take a close look through Matthew chapter 18, because Jesus tells you what to do when someone sins against you. And he doesn't say this is, you know, the optional extra credit thing to do. He says, this is what you do when someone sins against you. Go and show him his fault just between the two of you. And then he continues on from there. If it's an issue of disagreement, I, I would encourage you. I think you, this could be very powerful. Read carefully through Romans chapter 14 with that disagreement in view and see what, how Paul's wisdom applies to this particular disagreement. Uh, and what can church leaders do? Uh, we can remind our congregation uh, that church is not always comfortable. Uh, you know, in your new members class as a pastor, you got to talk about this. Don't don't make people feel like you know church is just going to be all lovey-dovey all the time. <laughs> I would say it's better than that. <laughs> don't <laughs> but don't sell us short. Uh, uh, church leaders can remind us that um, there is truth in the scriptures for how to deal with these differences and disagreements. And I would, I would give you Romans 12 to 15 as a wonderful example of that. Uh, and church leaders can help restore perspective uh, when a particular member seems that their own personal hobby horse seems to be more important than unity in Christ. That's where a church, member, a church leader can just gently pull that person aside and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, um, you know, unity in Christ, John 17, is massively important. Uh, and let's talk about how you can be a force for unity rather than a detractor from it. I should have asked you this earlier. To, to what extent are doctrinal disagreements over the end times, over some of these issues? I mean, are those still a thing, or is it more societal issues today? As I look at the landscape, I think churches have a harder time with societal disagreements. I kind of wish we had a harder time with doctrinal disagreements. Uh, I think sometimes we'd be better off if we care more about those things. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're in an older church, you probably have a statement of faith. That essentially is a document that says, these are the doctrinal issues we need to agree on to be a church together. Anything outside of this, we don't necessarily think is unimportant, uh, but uh, we don't think it's essential for, for being together as a church. You know, you mentioned end-time issues. There's a huge difference between saying, I don't believe that hell is real, that's an end-time issue, versus saying, I think Jesus is going to come back at the beginning of the tribulation or the middle of the tribulation. Huge difference in our ability to, uh, to be one in Christ on those two very different doctrinal matters. So it doesn't lend itself just to kind of an easy categorization, end-time issues don't matter, sexual issues do. Uh, there, there are going to be distinctions inside all those categories. And Loving the Ones Who Drive You Crazy, the title of your book, and I'm wondering the role of prayer on the individual believer level and on the role of the church? You know, not in this book, but in another book I wrote called The Compelling Community, I actually list out a whole bunch of uh, prayers 
that uh, that I would encourage church leaders to use in their corporate prayer time together as a church so we can have these ideas flowing through our heads. Uh, as an individual, uh, pray for wisdom. You know, so often I'm thinking, gosh, if I was smarter, if I was wiser, I would probably know what to do in this situation. I don't. Well, the beautiful thing is that God promises, James chapter 1, if we ask for wisdom, he will give it to us. He's a generous God. He loves to give us wisdom. Uh, and, and, and pray that we would love, I talk about this a fair bit in the book, pray that we would love the glory of Christ more than we do. Uh, sometimes we get into trouble because we love our comfort more than we love the reputation of Christ. And, and that's not a Christian way to live, but it's where we all are. And so we can, Lord, uh, as I understand my own sin, as I understand the beauty of your scriptures and the glory of your son, help me value the reputation of Christ more than my own comfort when it comes to things at church. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Washington, D.C. Pastor Jamie Dunlop, author of the book, Love the Ones Who Drive You Crazy, Eight Truths for Pursuing Unity in Your Church. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Bob Cochran on what it means to live out your faith in the legal profession. I think some clients sort of looked at me, were surprised that a lawyer was suggesting we pray together, and their attitude was more, well, it couldn't hurt. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And we'll give it a try, but others, you know, have come back to me uh, years years later, and and that was a, a very meaningful time. Um, for them. That's tomorrow at this same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening.